Welcome to Volume 3 of an Uvula Audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain. Chapter 2, Part 6 Father had gone to Paris to be best man at the wedding of one of his friends from the old days in New Zealand. Captain John Cristal had made himself a career in the British Army and was an officer in the Hussars. Later on, he became governor of a prison, but he was not as dreary as that might imply. After the wedding, the captain and his wife went off on their honeymoon, and the mother of the new Mrs. Cristal came down to St. Antoine with father. Mrs. Stratton was an impressive kind of a person. She was a musician and a singer, but I forget whether she had been on the stage. In any case, she was not a very theatrical character, rather the opposite, although she had a certain amount of dash about her. She was not what you would call elderly, by any means, and besides, she was a woman of great vitality and strength of character, with rich intelligence and talent and strong and precise ideas about things. Her convictions commanded respect, as did her many talents, and above all, her overwhelming personal dignity. You felt that she ought to have been called Lady Stratton or the Countess of something. At first, I was secretly resentful of the great influence she at once began to exercise over our lives, and thought she was bossing our affairs too much, but even I was able to realize that her views and advice and guidance were very valuable things, but so strong was her influence that I think it was due to her more than anyone else that we gave up the idea of living permanently in St. Antoine. The house was almost finished, ready for occupation, and it was a beautiful little house too, simple and solid. It looked good to live in, with that one big room with the medieval window and a huge medieval fireplace. Father had even managed to procure a winding stone stair, and it was by that that you went up to the bedroom. The garden around the house, where Father had done much work, would have been fine. On the other hand, Father was traveling too much for the house to be really useful. In the winter of 1927, he was some months at Marseille, and the rest of the time at Set, another Mediterranean port. Soon, he would have to go to England, for by this time he was ready for another exhibition. All this time I was at the Lycée, becoming more and more hard-boiled by my precocity and getting accustomed to the idea of growing up as a Frenchman. Then Father went to London for the exhibition. It was spring of 1928. The school year would be soon over. I was not thinking much about the future. All I knew was that Father would be back from England in a few days. It was a bright, sunny morning in May when he arrived at the Lycée and the first thing he told me was to get my things packed. We were going to England. I looked around like a man that has had chains struck from his hands. How the light sang on the brick walls of the prison whose gate had just burst open before me, sprung by some invisible and beneficent power. My escape from the Lycée was, I believe, providential. In the last moments in which I had an opportunity to do so, I tasted the ferocious delights of exultant gloating over the companions I was about to leave. They stood around me in the sun with their hands hanging at their sides, wearing their black smocks and their berets, and laughing and sharing my excitement, not without envy. And then I was riding down the quiet street in a carriage, with my luggage beside me, and father talking about what we were going to do. How lightly the cab horse's hooves rang out in the hard white dirt of the street. How gaily they echoed along the pale, smug walls of the dusty houses. Liberty, they said. Liberty, 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 liberty. All the way down the street. 
We passed the big polygonal barn of a post office, covered with the tatters of ancient posters, and entered under the dappled shadows of the plane trees. I looked ahead up the long street to Villa Nouvelle Station, where I had taken the train so many times in the small hours of the morning on my way home to spend Sunday in St. Antoine. When we got on the little train and traveled the way we had first come to the Aveyron Valley, I did indeed feel my heart tighten at the loss of my 13th century. But oh, it had long ceased to belong to us. We had not been able to hold on for very long to St. Antoine's of the first year, and the bitter lie that I say had burnt all of its goodness out of me again, and I was cauterized against it and had become somewhat insensitive to it. Not so much so, however, that I did not feel a little sad at leaving it forever. It is sad, too, that we never lived in the house that Father built. But never mind. The grace of those days has not been altogether lost by any means. Before I was really able to believe that I was out of the lycée for good, we were racing through Picardy on the Nord Railway. Pretty soon, the atmosphere would take on that dim, pearlish gray that would tell us that we were nearing the channel, and all along the line we would read the big billboards saying in English, Visit Egypt! Then after that, the channel steamer, Folkestone cliffs white as cream in the sunny haze, the jetty, the gray-green downs, and the line of prim hotels along the top of the rock. These things all made me happy, and the cockney cry of the porters and the smell of strong tea in the station refreshment room spelled out all the associations of what had, up to now, always been a holiday country for me, a land heavy with awe-inspiring proprieties, but laden with all kinds of comforts and in which every impact of experience seemed to reach the soul through seven or eight layers of insulation. England meant all this for me in those days, and continued to do so for a year or two more, because going to England meant going to Aunt Maud's house in Ailing. The red brick house at 18 Carlton Road, with the little lawn that was also a bowling green, and the windows looking out on the enclosed patch of grass, which was the Durston House cricket field, was a fortress of 19th century security. Here in Ailing, where all the Victorian standards stood entrenched in row upon row of identical houses, Aunt Maud and Uncle Ben lived in the very heart and center of the citadel, and indeed, Uncle Ben was one of the commanders. The retired headmaster of Durston House Preparatory School for Boys on Castlebar Road looked like almost the great, tearful, solemn warlords of Victorian society. He was a stoop-shouldered man with a huge white waterfall mustache, a pince-nez, ill-fitting tweeds. He walked slowly and with a limp because of his infirmities, and required much attention from everybody, especially Aunt Maud. When he spoke, although he spoke quietly and distinctly, you knew he had a booming voice if he wanted to use it. And sometimes, when he had a particularly dramatic statement to make, his eyes would widen and he would stare at you in the face and shake his finger at you and intone the words like the ghost of Hamlet. Then, if that had been the point of some story, he would sit back in his chair and laugh quietly, displaying his great teeth and gazing from face to face of those who sat at his feet. As for Aunt Maud, I think I have met very few people in my life so like an angel. Of course she was well on in years, and her clothes, especially her hats, were of a conservatism most extreme. I believe she had not forsaken a detail of the patterns that were popular at the time of the Diamond Jubilee. 
She was a sprightly and charming person, a tall, thin, quiet, meek old lady who still, after all these years, had something about her of the sensible and sensitive Victorian girl. Nice in the strict sense and in the broad colloquial sense was a word made for her. She was a very nice person. In a way, her pointed nose and her thin, smiling lips even suggested the expression of one who had just finished pronouncing that word. How nice! Now I was going to go to school in England, and I would be more and more under her wing. In fact, I had barely landed when she took me on one of those shopping expeditions in Oxford Street that was the immediate prelude to Ripley Court, a school in Surrey, which was now in the hands of her sister-in-law, Mrs. Pierce, the wife of Uncle Ben's late brother, Robert. He had been killed in a cycling accident when, coming to the bottom of a hill, he had failed to turn the corner and had run straight into a brick wall. His brakes had gone back on him halfway down. It was on one of those evenings in Oxford Street, perhaps not the very first one, that Maud and I had a great conversation about my future. We had just bought me several pairs of gray flannel trousers, and a sweater, and some shoes, and some gray flannel shirts, and one of those floppy flannel hats that English children have to wear. And now, having emerged from D.H. Evans, we're riding down Oxford Street on top of an open bus, right up in front, where one could see simply everything. I wonder if Tom has thought it all about his future, Aunt Maud said, and looked at me, winking and blinking with both eyes as a sign of encouragement. I was Tom. She sometimes addressed you in the third person like that, perhaps as a sign of some delicate inward diffidence about bringing the matter up at all. I admitted that I had thought a little about the future and what I wanted to be, but I rather hesitated to tell her that I wanted to be a novelist. Do you think that writing would be a good profession for anyone? I said tentatively. Yes, indeed. Writing is a very fine profession. But what kind of writing would you like to do? I've been thinking that I might want to write stories, I said. I imagine you would probably do quite well at that some day, said Aunt Maud kindly, but added, Of course you know that writers sometimes find it very difficult to make their way in the world. Yes, I realize that, I said reflectively. Perhaps if you had some other occupation as a means of making a living, you might find time to write in your spare moments. Novelists sometimes get their start that way, you know. I might be a journalist, I suggested, and write for newspapers. Perhaps that is a good idea. A knowledge of languages would be very valuable in that field, too. You could work your way up to the position of a foreign correspondent. And I could write books in my spare time. Yes, I suppose you probably could manage it that way. I think we rode all the way out to Ailing, talking in this somewhat abstract and utopian strain, and finally we got off and crossed Haven Green to Castlebar Road, where we had to stop at Durston House for something or other. It was not the first time that I had met Mrs. Pierce, the headmaster of Ripley Court. She was a bulky and rather belligerent-looking woman with great pouches under her eyes, and she was standing in a room in which were hung several of my father's paintings. She had probably been looking at them and considering the error and instability of an artist's way of life, when Aunt Maud mentioned the fact that we had been talking about my future. Does he want to be a dilettante like his father? said Mrs. Pierce, roughly surveying me with a rather outraged expression through the lenses of her spectacles. We were thinking that perhaps he might become a journalist, said Aunt Maud gently. Nonsense, said Mrs. Pierce. 
Let him go into business, make a decent living for himself. There's no use in his wasting his time and deceiving himself. He might as well get some sensible ideas into his head from the very start and prepare himself for something solid and reliable and not go into the world with his head full of dreams. And then, turning to me, she cried out, Boy, don't become a dilettante. Do you hear? I was received at Riffley Court, although the summer term was almost over, more or less as if I were an orphan or some kind of stray that required at once pity and a special, not unsuspicious kind of attention. I was the son of an artist and had just come from two years in a French school, and the combination of artist and France added up to practically everything that Mrs. Pierce and her friends suspected and disliked. Besides, to crown it all, I didn't know any Latin. What was to be made of a boy who was already in the middle of his fourteenth year and could not decline Mensa, had never even opened a Latin grammar? So I had the humiliation of once again descending to the lowest place and sitting with the smallest boys in the school and beginning at the beginning. But Ripley was a pleasant and happy place after the prison of the Lycee. The huge dark green sweep of the cricket field and the dark shadows of the elm trees where one sat waiting for his innings and the dining room where we crammed ourselves with bread and butter and jam at tea time, and listened to Mr. Onslow reading aloud from the works of Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle. All this was immense luxury and peace after Montauban. And the mentality of the red-faced innocent English boys was a change. They seemed to be much pleasanter and much happier, and indeed they had ever reason to be so, since they all came from the shelter of comfortable and secure homes, and were so far protected from the world by a thick wall of ignorance, a wall which was to prove no real protection against anything as soon as they passed on to their various public schools, but which for the time being kept them children. On Sundays we all dressed up in the ludicrous clothes that the English conceived to be appropriate for the young, and went marching off to the village church, where a whole transept was reserved for us. There we all sat in rows, in our black-eaten jackets, and our snow-white eaten collars choking us up to the chin, and bent our well-brushed and combed heads over the pages of our hymnals, and at last I was really going to church. On Sunday evenings, after the long walk in the country, through the lush Surrey fields, we gathered again in the wooden drill room of the school, and sat on benches, and sang hymns, and listened to Mr. Onslow reading aloud from Pilgrim's Progress. Thus, just about the time when I most needed it, I did acquire a little natural faith, and found many occasions of praying and lifting up my mind to God. It was the first time I had ever seen people kneel publicly by their beds before getting into them, and the first time I had ever sat down to meals after a grace. And for about the next two years I think I was almost sincerely religious. Therefore I was also to some extent happy and at peace. I do not think there was anything very supernatural about it, although I am sure grace was working in our souls in some obscure and uncertain way. But at least we were fulfilling our natural duties to God, and therefore satisfying a natural need. For our duties and our needs, and all the fundamental things for which we are created, come down in practice to the same thing. Later on, like practically everyone else in our stupid and godless society, I was to consider these two years as my religious phase. I am glad that that now seems very funny for it is sad that it is very funny in so few cases. Because I think that practically everybody goes through such a phase, and for the majority of them, that is all that it is, a phase and nothing more. If that is so, it is their own fault. 
For life on this earth is not simply a series of phases which we more or less passively undergo. If the impulse to worship God and to adore him in truth by the goodness and order of our own lives is nothing more than a transitory and emotional thing, that is our fault. It is only because we make it so and because we take what is substantially a deep and powerful and lasting moral impetus, supernatural in its origin and in its direction, and reduce it to the level of our own weak and unstable and futile fancies and desires. Prayer is attractive enough when it is considered in a context of good food and sunny, joyous country churches and the green English countryside. And as a matter of fact, the Church of England means all this. It is a class religion the cult of a special society and group, not even of a whole nation, but of the ruling minority in the nation. That is the principal basis for its rather strong coherence up till now. There is certainly not much doctrinal unity, much less a mystical bond between people, many of whom have even ceased to believe in grace or sacraments. The thing that holds them together is the powerful attraction of their own social tradition, and the stubborn tenacity with which they cling to certain social standards and customs, more or less for their own sake. The Church of England depends for its existence almost entirely on the solidarity and conservatism of the English ruling class. Its strength is not in anything supernatural, but in the strong social and racial instincts which bind the members of this caste together. And the English cling to their church the way they cling to their king and to their old schools, because of a big, vague, sweet complex of subjective dispositions regarding the English countryside, old castles and cottages, games of cricket in the long afternoons, tea parties on the Thames, croquet, roast beef, pipe smoking, the Christmas ponto, punch, and the London Times, and all those other things, the mere thought of which produce a kind of warm and inexpressible ache in the English heart. I got mixed up in all this as soon as I entered Ripley Court, and it was strong enough in me to blur and naturalize all that might have been supernatural in my attraction to prayer and to love God. And consequently, the grace that was given me was stifled not at once, but gradually. As long as I lived in this peaceful hothouse atmosphere of cricket and eaten collars and synthetic childhood, I was pious, perhaps sincerely. But as soon as the frail walls of this illusion broke down, that is, as soon as I went to a public school and saw that underneath their sentimentality the English were just as brutal as the French, I made no further effort to keep up what seemed to be more and more a manifest pretense. At the time, of course, I was not capable of reasoning about all this, even if my mind had been sufficiently developed to do so. I would never have found the perspective for it. Besides, all this was going on in my emotions and my feelings, rather than in my mind and will, thanks to the vagueness and total unsubstantiality of the Anglican doctrine as it gets preached in practice from most pulpits. It is a terrible thing to think of the grace that is wasted in this world and of the people that are lost. Perhaps one explanation of the sterility and inefficacy of Anglicanism in the moral order is, besides its lack of vital contact with the mystical body of the true church, the social injustice and the class oppression on which it is based. For, since it is mostly a class religion, it contracts the guilt of the class from which it is inseparable. But this is a guess which I am not prepared to argue out. 
I was already nearly too old for Ripley Court, being by now 14, but I had picked up enough Latin to be able to make at least a presentable showing in a scholarship examination for some public school. As the school where I should go, Uncle Ben made a more or less expert choice in his capacity as a retired headmaster of a prep school. Since father was poor and an artist, there would be no thinking of one of the big schools like Harrow or Winchester, although Winchester was the one for which Uncle Ben had the greatest respect, having achieved his ambition of sending many of his pupils there with scholarships. The reason was twofold. Not merely that father could not be considered able to pay the bills, although in fact Pop was to pay them from America, but the scholarship examination would be altogether too hard for me. The final choice was regarded by everyone as very suitable. It was an obscure but decent little school in the Midlands, an old foundation with a kind of little tradition of its own. It had recently gone up slightly in its rating because of the work of its greatest headmaster, who was just about to retire. All of this was the kind of thing Uncle Ben knew and told me about, and Aunt Maud confirmed it by saying, I am sure you will find Oakham a very nice school. Chapter 3, Part 1 The Harrowing of Hell In the autumn of 1929, I went to Oakham. There was something very pleasant and peaceful about the atmosphere of this little market town with its school and its old 14th century church with the gray spire rising in the middle of a wide midland vale. Obscure it certainly was. Oakham's only claim to fame was the fact that it was the county town, and in fact, the only real town in the smallest county in England. And there were not even any main roads or main railway lines running through Rutland, except for the Great North Road, which skirted the Lincolnshire border. In this quiet backwater, under the trees full of rooks, I was to spend three and a half years getting ready for a career. Three and a half years were a short time. But when they were over, I was a very different person from the embarrassed and clumsy and more or less well-meaning but interiorly unhappy 14-year-old who came there with a suitcase and a brown felt hat and a trunk and a plain wooden tuck box. Meanwhile, before I entered Oakham and took up my abode in the ratty, gaslit corner of Hodgewing that was called the nursery, things had happened to complicate and sadden my life still further. In the Easter vacation of 1929, I had been with Father at Canterbury, where he was working and painting pictures, mostly of the big, quiet cathedral clothes. I had spent most of my days walking in the country around Canterbury, and the time went quietly except for the momentous occasion of the big Charlie Chaplin movie, which came late indeed to Canterbury. It was the gold rush. When the holidays were over and I went back to Ripley Court, Father crossed over to France. The last I heard about him was that he was in Rouen. Then one day, toward the end of the summer term, when the school cricket 11 went to Ailing to play Durston House, I was surprised to find myself appointed to go along as scorer. There was, of course, no likelihood of my ever going to be a member of the team, since I was a hopeless cricketer from the start. On the way into town, on the bus or somewhere, I learned that my father was in Ailing and Aunt Maud's, and that he was ill. This was why they had sent me along, I suppose. During the tea interval, I would have a chance to run into the house which overlooked the cricket field and see father. The bus unloaded us in the lane that led to the field. In the tiny pavilion, 
the other scorer and I opened our large green-ruled books and wrote down the names of one another's teams in the boxes down the side of the big rectangular page. Then, with our pencils, all sharpened, we waited as the first pair went into bat, striding heavily in their big white pads. The dim June sun shone down on the field. Over yonder, where the poplars swayed slightly in the haze, was Aunt Maud's house, and I could see the window and the brick gable where Father probably was. So the match began. I could not believe that Father was very ill. If he were, I suppose that they would have made more of a fuss about it. During the tea interval, I went over and passed through the green wooden door in the wall to Aunt Maud's garden and entered the house and went upstairs. Father was in bed. You could not tell from his appearance how ill he was, but I managed to gather it from the way he talked and from his actions. He seemed to move with difficulty and pain, and he did not have much to say. When I asked him what was the matter, he said, Nobody seemed to know. I went back to the cricket pavilion, a little saddened and unquiet, and told myself he would probably get better in a week or two. And I thought this guess had proved to be right when, at the end of the term, he wrote to me that he would be spending the summer in Scotland, where an old friend of his, who had a place in Aberdeenshire, had invited him to come and rest and get well. We took one of those night trains from King's Cross, Father seemed well enough, although by the time we got to Aberdeen the following noon, after stopping at a lot of gray and dreary Scotch stations, he was weary and silent. We had a long wait at Aberdeen, and we thought of going out and taking a look at the city. We stepped out of the station and into a wide, deserted, cobbled street. In the distance, there was a harbor. We saw gulls in the masts and funnel of what appeared to be a couple of trawlers, but the place seemed to have been struck by plague. There was nobody in sight. Now that I think of it, it must have been Sunday, for as dead as Aberdeen was, it surely could not have been so completely deserted on a weekday. The whole place was as gray as a tomb, and the forbidding aspect of all that hostile and untenanted granite depressed us both so much as we immediately returned to the station and sat down in the refreshment room and ordered some hotchpotch, which did little or nothing to lighten our spirits. It was late afternoon by the time we got to Inch. The sun came out and slanted a long ray at the far hills of Heather, which constituted our host's grouse moor. The air was clear and silent as we drove out of the forsaken town that seemed to us more of a settlement than a town and headed into the wilderness. For the first few days, Father kept to his room, coming down for meals. Once or twice he went out into the garden. Soon he could not even come down for meals. The doctor paid frequent visits, and soon I understood that Father was not going to get better at all. Finally, one day, he called me up to his room. I have to go back to London, he said. London? I must go to a hospital, son. Are you worse? I don't get any better. Have they still not found out what's the matter with you, Father? He shook his head, but he said, Pray God to make me well. I think I ought to be all right in due course. Don't be unhappy. But I was unhappy. You like it here, don't you? He asked me. It's all right, I suppose. You'll stay here. They're very nice. They'll take care of you. It'll be good for you, too. Do you like horses? I admitted without any undue excitement or enthusiasm that the ponies were all right. There were two of them. The two nieces of the family and I spent... 
part of the day grooming them and cleaning out their stalls and part of the day riding them. But as far as I was concerned, it was too much work. The nieces, divining this unsportsmanlike attitude of mine, tended to be a little hostile and to boss me around in a patronizing sort of way. They were 16 or 17 and seemed to have nothing whatsoever on their minds except horses, and they did not even look like their normal selves when they were not in their riding breeches. And so Father said goodbye, and we put him on the train, and he went to London, to the Middlesex Hospital. The summer days dragged on, cold days full of mist, some days bright with sun. I became less and less interested in the stable and the ponies, and before August was half done, the nieces had given me up in disgust, and I was allowed to drop away into my own unhappy isolation, my world without horses, without hunting and shooting, without tartans, and without the Braemar gathering and all those other noble institutions. Instead, I sat in the branches of a tree reading the novels of Alexandre Dumas, volume after volume, in French, and later, in rebellion against the world of horses, I would borrow a bicycle that happened to be around the place and go off into the country and look at the huge ancient stone circles where the Druids had once congregated to offer human sacrifice to the rising sun, when there was a rising sun. One day, I was in the deserted house all by myself with Athos, Porthos, Aramis, and D'Artagnan, Athos being my favorite, and in a sense the one with whom I tended to project myself. The telephone rang, and I thought for a while of letting it ring and not answering, but eventually I did. It turned out to be a telegram for me. At first, I could not make out the words as the Scotch lady in the telegraph office was pronouncing them. Then, when I did make them out, I didn't believe them. The message ran, Entering New York Harbor, all's well. And it came from Father, in the hospital in London. I tried to argue the woman at the other end of the wire into telling me that it came from my Uncle Harold, who had been traveling in Europe that year. But she would not be arguing into anything, but what she saw right in front of her nose. The telegram was signed Father, and it came from London. I hung at the receiver, and the bottom dropped out of my stomach. I walked up and down in the silent house. I sat down in one of the big leather chairs in the smoking room. There was nobody there. There was nobody in the whole huge house. I sat there in the dark, unhappy room, unable to think, unable to move, with all the innumerable elements of my isolation crowding in upon me from every side. Without a home, without a family, without a country, without a father, apparently without any friends, without any interior peace or confidence or light or understanding of my own. Without God, too. Without God, without heaven. Without grace. Without anything. And what was happening to Father there in London? I was unable to think of it. The first thing that Uncle Ben did when I entered the house at Ailing was to tell me the news with all the dramatic overtones he gave to his most important announcements. His eyes widened and he stared at me and bared his great teeth, pronouncing every syllable with tremendous distinctness and emphasis, saying, Your father has a malignant tumor on the brain. Father lay in a dark ward in the hospital. He did not have much to say, but it was not as bad as I had feared from the telegram he had sent me. Everything he said was lucid and intelligible, and I was comforted. 
in the sense that a clearly apparent physiological cause seemed to me to exclude the thought of insanity in the strict sense. Father was not out of his mind, but you could already see the evil swelling lump on his forehead. He told me weakly that they were going to try and operate on him, but they were afraid they could not do much. Again, he told me to pray. I did not say anything about the telegram. Leaving the hospital, I knew what was going to happen. He would lie there like that for another year, perhaps two or three, and then he would die unless they first killed him on an operating table. Since those days, doctors have found out that you can cut away whole sections of the brain in these operations and save lives and minds and all. In 1929, they evidently did not know this yet. It was father's lot to die slowly and painfully in the years when the doctors were just reaching the point of that discovery. Part 2 Oh, Oakham, Oakham. The gray murk of the winter evenings in that garret where seven or eight of us moiled around in the gaslight, among the tuck boxes, noisy, greedy, foul-mouthed, fighting and shouting. There was one who had a ukulele, which he did not know how to play. And Pop used to send me the brown rotogravur sections of the New York Sunday papers, and we would cut out the pictures of the actresses and paste them up on the walls. And I toiled with Greek verbs, and we drank raisin wine and ate potato chips until we all fell silent and sat apart, stupefied and nauseated. And under the gaslight, I would write letters to father in the hospital, letters on cream-colored notepaper, stamped with the school crest in blue. After three months, it was better. I was moved up into the upper fifth and changed to a new study downstairs with more light, though just as crowded and just as much of a mess. And we had Cicero in European history, all about the 19th century, with a certain amount of cold scorn poured on Pio Nono. In the English class, we read The Tempest and The Nun's Priest's Tale and The Pardoner's Tale, and Buggy Jerwood, the school chaplain, tried to teach us trigonometry. With me, he failed. Uh, sometimes he would try to teach us something about religion, but in this, he also failed. In any case, his religious teaching consisted mostly in more or less vague ethical remarks an obscure mixture of ideals of English gentlemanliness and his favorite notions of personal hygiene. Everybody knew that his class was liable to degenerate into a demonstration of some practical points about rowing, with Buggy sitting on the table showing us all how to pull an oar. There was no rowing at Oakham, since there was no water, but the chaplain had been a rowing blue at Cambridge in his time. He was a tall, powerful, handsome man with hair graying at the temples, and a big English chin, and a broad, uncreased brow with sentences like, I shall stand for fair play and good sportsmanship, written all over it. His greatest sermon was on the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and a wonderful chapter indeed, but his exegesis was a bit strange. However, it was typical of him and in a way of his whole church, Buggy's interpretation of the word charity in this passage, and in the whole Bible, was that it simply stood for, quote, 
all that we mean when we call a chap a gentleman, unquote. In other words, charity meant good sportsmanship, cricket, the decent thing, wearing the right kind of clothes, using the proper spoon, and not being a cad or a bounder. There he stood in the plain pulpit and raised his chin above the heads of all the rows of boys in black coats and said, One might go through this chapter of St. Paul and simply substitute the word gentleman for charity wherever it occurs. If I talk with the tongues of men angels and be not a gentleman, I am become as sounding brass or as a tinkling cymbal. A gentleman is patient, is kind. A gentleman envieth not, dealeth not perversely, is not puffed up. A gentleman never falleth away. And so it went. I won't accuse him of finishing the chapter with, Now there remains faith, hope, and gentlemanliness, and the greatest of all of these is gentlemanliness, although it was logical in terms of his reasoning. The boys listened tolerantly to these thoughts, but I think St. Peter and the Twelve Apostles would have been rather surprised at the concept that Christ had been scourged and beaten by soldiers, cursed and crowned with thorns, and subjected to unutterable contempt, and finally nailed to the cross and left to bleed to death in order that we all might become gentlemen. As time went on, I was to get into fierce arguments with the football captain on this subject, but that day had yet to come. As long as I was among the 14- and 15-year-olds in Hodge Wing, I had to mind my behavior with the lords of the school, or at least in their presence. We were disciplined by the constant fear of one of those pompous and ceremonious sessions of bullying, arranged with ritualistic formality, when a dozen or so culprits were summoned into one of the hollows around Brook Hill, or up Bronston Road and beaten with sticks and made to sing foolish songs and to hear themselves upbraided for their moral and social defects. When I got into the sixth form, which I did after a year, I came more directly under the influence and guidance of the new headmaster, F.C. Dougherty. He was a young man for a headmaster, about 40, tall with a great head of black hair, a tremendous smoker of cigarettes, and a lover of Plato. Because of the cigarettes, he used to love to give his class in his own study, when he decently could, for there he could smoke one after another, while in the classrooms he couldn't smoke at all. He was a broad-minded man, and I never realized how much I owed to him until after I left Oakham. If it had not been for him, I would probably have spent years in the fifth form trying to pass the school certificate in mathematics. He saw that I could far easier pass the higher certificate, specializing in French and Latin, where, although the examination of these subjects would be very hard, there would be no math. And the higher certificate meant far more than the other. It was he who began from the start to prepare me for the university, getting me to aim at a Cambridge scholarship. And it was he who let me follow the bent of my own mind for modern languages and literature, although that meant that I spent much of my time studying alone in the library, since there was no real modern course at Oakham at the time. This was all the more generous of him for the fact that he really was very much attached to the classics, and especially Plato, and he would have loved all of us to catch some of that infection. And yet this infection, which in my eyes was nothing short of deadly, was something I resisted with all my will. I do not know exactly why I hated Plato, 
But after the first ten pages of The Republic, I decided I couldn't stand Socrates and his friends, and I don't think I ever recovered from that repugnance. There can hardly have been any serious intellectual reason for my dislike of these philosophers, although I do have a kind of congenital distaste for philosophic idealism. But we were reading the Republic in Greek, which meant that we never really got far enough into it to be able to grasp the ideas very well. Most of the time I was too helpless with the grammar and syntax to have any time for deeper difficulties. Nonetheless, after a couple of months of it, I got to a state where phrases like the good, the true, the beautiful filled me with a kind of suppressed indignation because they stood for the big sin of Platonism, the reduction of all reality to the level of pure abstraction, as if concrete individual substances had no essential reality of their own, but were only shadows of some remote, universal, ideal essence, filed away in a big card index somewhere in heaven, while the demiurges milled around, the logos piping their excitement in high-fluted English intellectual tones. Platonism entered very much into the headmaster's ideas of religion, which were deeply spiritual and intellectual. Also, he was slightly more high church than most of the people at Oakham. However, it was no easier to find out concretely what he believed than it was to find out what anybody else believed in that place. I had several different masters in the one hour a week devoted to religious instruction outside of the daily chapel. The first one just plodded through the third book of Kings. The second, a tough little Yorkshire man who had the virtue of being very definite and outspoken in everything he said, once exposed us to Descartes' proof of his own and God's existence. He told us that, as far as he was concerned, that was the foundation of what religion meant to him. I accepted the cogito ergo sum with less reserve than I should have, although I must have had enough sense to realize that any proof of what is self-evident must necessarily be illusory. If there are no self-evident first principles as a foundation for reasoning to conclusions that are not immediately apparent, how can you construct any kind of philosophy? If you have to prove even the basic axioms of your metaphysics, you will never have any metaphysics, because you will never have any strict proof of anything, for your first proof will involve you in an infinite regression, proving that you are proving what you are proving, and so on, into the exterior darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. If Descartes thought it was necessary to prove his own existence by the fact that he was thinking, and that his thought therefore existed in some subject, how did he prove that he was thinking in the first place? But as to the second step, that God must exist because Descartes had a clear idea of him, that never convinced me, then or at any other time, or now either. There are much better proofs for the existence of God than that one. As for the headmaster, when he gave us religious instruction, as he did in my last year or so at Oakham, he talked Plato and told me to read A.E. Taylor, which I did, but under compulsion and taking no trouble to try and understand what I was reading. In 1930, after I had turned 15, and before most of these things happened, the way began to be prepared for my various intellectual rebellions by a sudden and very definite sense of independence, a realization of my own individuality which, while being natural at my age, took an unhealthy egotistic turn. And everything seemed to conspire to encourage me to cut myself off from everybody else and go my own way. For a moment, in the storms and confusion of adolescence, 
I had been humbled by my own interior sufferings. And having a certain amount of faith in religion, I had subjected myself more or less willingly, even gladly, to the authority of others and to the ways and customs of those around me. But in Scotland, I had begun to bear my teeth and fight back against the humiliation of giving in to other people. And now I was rapidly building up a hard core of resistance against everything that displeased me. Whether it was the opinions or desires of others, or their commands, or their very persons, I would think what I wanted and do what I wanted and go my own way. If those who tried to prevent me had authority to prevent me, I would have to be at least externally polite in my resistance. But my resistance would be no less determined, and I would do my own will. When Pop and Bonamaman came to Europe again in 1930, they practically threw the doors of the world wide open to me and gave me my independence. The economic crisis of 1929 had not altogether ruined Pop. He did not have all his substance invested in companies that crashed, but the indirect effect on him was just as serious as it was on every other ordinary businessman. In June 1930, they all came down to Oakham, Pop, Bonamaman, and John Paul. It was a quiet visit. They no longer took towns by storm. The Depression had changed all that. Besides, they were used to traveling in Europe by now. The fear and trepidation that had been so strong an element of their excitement in the old days were somewhat allayed. Their voyages were comparatively, but only comparatively, serene. They had a couple of big rooms in the Labyrinthine Crown Inn at Oakham and one of the first things that Pop did was to take me apart into one of them and talk to me in a way that amounted to an emancipation. I think it was the first time in my life I had ever been treated as if I were completely grown up and able to take care of myself and everything and to hold my own in a business conversation. In reality, I have never been able to talk intelligently about business. When I listened to Pop exposing our financial affairs as if I understood every word about it, and when it was over, I had indeed grasped all the essentials. No one knew what was going to happen in the world in the next 10 or 20 years. Grosset and Dunlap were still in business, and so was Pop, but one could never tell when the business itself might fold up or if he himself would be turned out. But in order to make sure that John Paul and I would be able to finish school and even go on to university, and have something to keep us from starving while we were looking for a job afterwards. Pop had taken the money he had planned to leave us in his will and had put it away for us where it would be safe as possible in some kind of insurance policy which would pay us so much a year. He worked it out on a piece of paper and showed me all the figures and I nodded wisely. I didn't grasp the details, but I understood that I ought to be able to get along all right until about 1940. And in any case, before a couple of years had gone by, Pop discovered that the big magic insurance policy did not work as neatly as he'd expected, so he had to change his plans again, with loss of a little money somewhere. When it was all done, Pop gave me the piece of paper with all the figures on it and sat up straight in his chair and looked out the window, running his hand over the top of his bald head and said, So, now it's all settled. No matter what happens to me, You'll both be taken care of. You've got nothing to worry about for a few years anyway. I was a bit dazed by the momentousness of it all, and Pop's own great generosity, because after all, he really meant it that way. 
What he was trying to do was to arrange everything so that even if he were ruined, we would be able to take care of ourselves. Fortunately, he was never ruined. That day at Oakham, Pop crowned his generosity and his recognition of my maturity by an altogether astounding concession. He not only told me he was in favor of my smoking, but even bought me a pipe. I was 15, mind you, and Pop had always hated smoking anyway. Besides, it was forbidden by the rules of the school, rules which I had been systematically breaking all that year, more for the sake of asserting my independence than for the pleasure of lighting and relighting those cold, biting pipefuls of Rhodesian cut plug. When the holidays came, there was another big change. It was decided I would no longer spend my holidays with Aunt Maud or other relatives in the suburbs or outside of London. My godfather, an old friend of father's from New Zealand, who was by now a Harley Street specialist, offered to let me stay at his place in town when I was in London, and that meant that most of the day and night I was more or less free to do what I liked. Tom, my godfather, was to be the person I most respected and admired, and consequently the one who had the greatest influence on me at that time of my life. He too gave me credit for being more intelligent and mature than I was, and this of course pleased me very much. He was later to find out that his trust in me was misplaced. Life in the flat where Tom and his wife lived was very well-ordered and amusing. You got breakfast in bed, served by a French maid on a small tray, coffee or chocolate in a tiny pot, toast or rolls, and for me, fried eggs. After breakfast, which came in at about nine, I knew I would have to wait a little to get a bath, so I would stay in bed for an hour or so more reading a novel by Evelyn Waugh or somebody like that. Then I would get up and take my bath and get dressed and go out and look for some amusement. Walk in the park, go to the museum, or go to some gramophone shop and listen to a lot of hot records, and then buy one to pay for the privilege of listening to all the rest. I used to go to Levy's on the top floor of one of those big buildings in the crescent of Regent Street because they imported all the latest Victors and Brunswicks and Oakes from America and I would lock myself up in one of those little glass door booths and play all the Duke Ellingtons and Louis Armstrongs and the old King Olivers and all the other things I have forgotten. Basin Street Blues, Beale Street Blues, St. James Infirmary, and all the other places that had blues written all over them. All these I suddenly began to know much of by indirection and woeful hearsay, and I guess I lived vicariously in all the slums and all the cities of the South, Memphis and New Orleans and Birmingham, places where I have never yet seen. I don't know where those streets were, but I certainly knew something true about them, which I found out on that top floor at Regent Street and in my study in Oakham. Then I would go back to my godfather's place, and we would have lunch in the dining room, sitting at the little table that always seemed to me so small and delicate that I was afraid to move for fear that the whole thing would collapse and the pretty French dishes would smash to the floor and scatter the French food on the waxed floorboards. Everything in that flat was small and delicate. It harmonized with my godfather and his wife. Not that he was delicate, but he was a little man who walked quietly and quickly on small feet or stood at the fireplace with a cigarette between his fingers, neat and precise as a decent doctor ought to be, and he had something of the pursed lips of medical men, the contraction of the lips that they somehow acquire leaning over wide-open bodies. 
Tom's wife was delicate. In fact, she looked almost brittle. She was French and the daughter of a great Protestant patriarch with a long white beard who dominated French Calvinism. Everything in their flat was in proportion to their own stature and delicacy and precision and neatness and wit. Yet I do not say it looked like a doctor's place, still less like an English doctor's place. English doctors always seem to go in for very heavy and depressing kinds of furniture, but Tom was not the kind of specialist that always wears a frock coat and a wing collar. His flat was bright and full of objects I was afraid to break, and on the whole I was scared to walk too heavily for fear I might suddenly go through the floor. What I most admired about Tom and Iris from the start was that they knew everything and had everything in its proper place. From the first moment when I discovered that one was not only allowed to make fun of English middle-class notions and ideals, but encouraged to do so in that little bright drawing room where we balanced coffee cups on our knees, I was very happy. I soon developed a habit of wholesale and glib detraction of all the people with whom I did not agree or whose tastes and ideas offended me. They, in turn, lent me all the novels and told me about the various plays and listened with amusement to Duke Ellington and played me their records of La Argentina. It was from them that I was to discover all the names that people most talked about in modern writing. Hemingway, Joyce, D.H. Lawrence, Evelyn Waugh, Celine with his Voyage au Bois de la Nuit, Guy and all the rest except that they did not bother much with poets. I heard about T.S. Eliot from the English master at Oakham, who had just come down from Cambridge and read me aloud The Hollow Men. It was Tom who, once we were in Paris, took me to see a lot of pictures by Chagall and several others like him, although he did not like Brach or the Cubists and never developed any of my enthusiasm for Picasso. It was he who showed me that there was some merit in Russian movies, and René Claire, but never understood the Marx Brothers. It was from him that I discovered the difference between the Café Royale and the Café Anglaise, and many other things of the same nature. And he also could tell you what members of the English nobility were thought to take dope. Really, all these things implied a rather strict standard of values, but values that were entirely worldly and cosmopolitan. Values they were, however, and one kept to them with a most remarkably nice fidelity. I only discovered much later on all that this implied, not only aesthetic values, but a certain worldly moral standard, the moral and artistic values being fused inseparably in the single order of taste. It was an unwritten law, and you had to be very smart and keenly attuned to their psychology to get it, but there it was, a strict moral law, which never expressed any open hatred of evil or even any direct and explicit condemnation of any other sins than bourgeois Phariseeism and middle-class hypocrisy, which they attacked without truce. Nevertheless, their code disposed of other deordinations with quiet and pointed mockery. The big difficulty with me and my failure was that I did not see, for instance, that their interest in D.H. Lawrence as art was, in some subtle way, disconnected from any endorsement of his ideas about how a man ought to live. Or rather, the distinction was more subtle still. It was between their interest in and amusement of those ideas, and the fact which they took for granted that it was rather vulgar to practice them the way Lawrence did. This was a distinction which I did not grasp until it was too late. Until the time I went to Cambridge, 
I developed rapidly under their influence, and in many ways the development was valuable and good. And of course, there must be no question of the kindness and sincerity of the interest which they took in me, or their generosity in devoting themselves so wholeheartedly to my care and to my training in their informal and unofficial way. It was Tom who definitely assured me that I should prepare for the English diplomatic, or at least the consular service, and did not spare any effort to see that I advanced steadily in every possible way toward that end. He was able to foresee an infinity of little details that would have to be taken care of long before they arose. The value, for instance, of reading for the bar, which simply meant eating a certain number of dinners at one of the inns of court so as to fulfill the minimum residence requirements of a London law student, and the payment of a fee for a minor distinction which would be useful in the diplomatic service. As it happened, I never got around to eating those dinners, and I dare to hope I shall be no lower in heaven for my failure to do so. Part 3 It was the summer of 1930 before most of these things had happened. I mean, the summer when Pop had made over to me the portion of my inheritance and threw open the door for me to run away and be a prodigal, or be a prodigal without running away from any earthly home, for that matter. I could very well eat the husks of swine without the inconvenience of going into a far country to look for them. Most of that summer, we were all together in London, The reason was that we could be near the hospital and visit Father. I remember the first of those visits. It was several months since I had been in London, and then only in passing, so I had really hardly seen Father at all since he had entered the hospital the autumn before. So all of us went to the hospital. Father was in a ward. We had arrived much too early and had to wait. We were in a new wing of the big hospital. The floor was shiny and clean vaguely depressed by the smell of sickness and disinfectant and the general medical smell that all hospitals have, we sat in a corridor downstairs for upwards of half an hour. I had just bought Hugo's Italian self-taught and began to teach myself some verbs sitting there in the hall with John Paul restive on the bench beside me, and time dragged on. Finally, the clock we had been watching got around to the appropriate hour. We went up in an elevator. They all knew where the ward was. It was a different ward. I think they had changed his ward two or three times, and he had had more than one operation, but none of them had been successful. We went into the ward. Father was in bed to the left, just as he went in through the door. When I saw him, I knew at once there was no hope of his living much longer. His face was swollen. His eyes were not clear, but above all, The tumor had raised a tremendous swelling on his forehead. I said, How are you, Father? He looked at me and put forth his hand in a confused and unhappy way, and I realized he could no longer even speak, but at the same time you could see he knew us and knew what was going on and that his mind was clear and that he understood everything. But the sorrow of his great helplessness suddenly fell upon me like a mountain. I was crushed by it. Tears sprang to my eyes. Nobody said anything. I hid my face in the blanket and cried. Poor father wept. The others stood by. It was excruciatingly sad. We were completely helpless. There was nothing anyone could do. When I finally looked up and dried my tears, I noticed that the attendants had put screens all around the bed. I was too miserable to feel ashamed of my 
un-English demonstration of sorrow and affection. And so we went away. What could I make of so much suffering? There was no way for me or for anyone else in the family to get anything out of it. It was a raw wound for which there was no adequate relief. You had to take it like an animal. We were in the condition of most of the world, the condition of men without faith in the presence of war, disease, pain, starvation, suffering, plague, bombardment, and death. You just had to take it like a dumb animal. Try to avoid it if you could. But you must eventually reach the point where you can't avoid it anymore. Take it. Try to stupefy yourself, if you like, so that it won't hurt so much. But you always have to take some of it. And it will devour you in the end. The truth that many people never understand, until it's too late, is that the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer. Because smaller and more insignificant things begin to torture you in proportion to your fear of being hurt. The one who does most to avoid suffering is, in the end, the one who suffers the most. And his suffering comes to him from things so little and so trivial that one can say that it is no longer objective at all. It's his own existence, his own being, that is at once the subject and the source of his pain. And his very existence and consciousness is his greatest torture. This is another of the great perversions by which the devil uses our philosophies to turn our whole nature inside out and eviscerate all our capacities for good, turning them against ourselves. All summer we went regularly and faithfully to the hospital once or twice a week. There was nothing we could do but sit there and look at Father and tell him things which he couldn't answer. But he understood what we said. In fact, if he could not talk... There were other things he could still do. One day I found his bed covered with little sheets of blue paper on which he had been drawing, and the drawings were real drawings, but they were unlike anything he had ever done before. Pictures of little irate Byzantine-looking saints with beards and great halos. Of us all, Father was the only one who really had any kind of faith, and I don't doubt that he had very much of it that behind the walls of his isolation, his intelligence, and his will, unimpaired, and not hampered in any essential way by the partial obstruction of some of his senses, were turned to God, and communed with God, who was with him and in him, and who gave him, as I believe, light to understand, and to make use of his suffering for his own good, and to perfect his soul. It was a great soul, large, full of natural charity, he was a man of exceptional intellectual honesty and sincerity and purity of understanding. And this affliction, this terrible, frightening illness, which was relentlessly pressing him down even into the jaws of the tomb, was not destroying him after all. Souls are like athletes. They need opponents worthy of them. If they are to be tried and extended and pushed to the full use of their powers and rewarded according to their capacity, and my father was in a fight with his tumor. None of us understood the battle. We thought he was done for, but it was making him great. And I think God was already weighing out to him the weight of reality that was to be his reward. For he certainly believed far more than any theologian would require of a man to hold explicitly as necessity of means. And so he was eligible for this reward, 
and his struggle was authentic and not wasted or lost or thrown away. At the Christmas holidays, I only saw him once or twice. Things were about the same. I spent most of the holidays in Strasbourg, where Tom had arranged for me to go for the sake of the languages, German and French. I stayed in a big Protestant pension in the Rue Franck-Matt, and under the unofficial tutelage of a professor at the university, a friend of Tom's family and of the Protestant patriarch. Professor Herring was a kind and pleasant man with a red beard, and one of the few Protestants I have ever met who struck one as being at all holy. That is, he possessed a certain profound interior peace, which he probably got from his contact with the fathers of the church, for he was a teacher of theology. We did not talk much about religion, however. Once, when some of his students were visiting him, one of them explained to me the essentials of Unitarianism, and when I asked the professor about it afterwards, he said it was all right, in a way which indicated that he approved, in a sort of academic and eclectic way, of all these different forms of belief, or rather that he was interested in them as objectively intriguing manifestations of a fundamental human instinct, regarding them more or less through the eyes of a sociologist. As a matter of fact, sometimes Protestant theology does, in certain circumstances, amount to little more than a combination of sociology and religious history, but I will not accuse him of teaching it altogether in that sense, where I really have no idea how he taught it. Under the inspiration of the environment, I went to a Lutheran church and sat through a long sermon in German, which I did not understand. But I think that was all the worship of God I did in Strasbourg. I was more interested in Josephine Baker, a big, skinny, colored girl from some American city like St. Louis, who came to one of the theaters and sang J'ai du mort, mon père et Paris. So I went back to school after seeing Father for a moment on the way through London. I'd been back for barely a week when I was summoned one morning to the headmaster's study and he gave me a telegram which said that father was dead. The sorry business was all over, and my mind made nothing of it. There was nothing I seemed to be able to grasp. Here was a man with a wonderful mind, and a great talent and a great heart. And what was more, he was the man who had brought me into the world, had nourished me and cared for me, had shaped my soul, and to whom I was bound by every possible kind of bond of affection and attachment and admiration and reverence, killed by a growth on his brain. Tom got an obituary printed in the Times, and he saw to it that the funeral went off more or less decently, but it was still another one of those cremations, this time at Golders Green. The only difference was that the minister said more prayers and the chapel looked a little more like a chapel. And Tom had got them to hide the coffin under a very beautiful shroud of silk from the Orient, China, Bali, India, somewhere. But in the end, they took the shroud off and rolled the coffin through one of those big sliding doors. And then in the sinister secrecy of the big, intricate crematory, out of sight, the body was burned and we went away. Nevertheless, all that is of no importance and it can be forgotten. For I hope that in the living Christ I shall one day see my father again.
That is, I believe that Christ, who is the Son of God, who is God, has power to raise up all those who have died in his grace to the glory of his own resurrection and to share body and soul in the glory of his divine inheritance at the last day. The death of my father left me sad and depressed for a couple of months, but that eventually wore away, and when it did, I found myself completely stripped of everything that impeded the movement of my own will to do as it pleased. I imagined that I was free, and it would take me five or six years to discover what a frightful captivity I got myself into. It was in this year, too, that the hard crust of my dry soul finally squeezed out all the last traces of religion that had ever been in it. There was no room for any god in that empty temple full of dust and rubbish which I was now so jealously to guard against all intruders in order to devote it to the worship of my own stupid will. And so I became the complete 20th century man. I now belonged to the world in which I lived. I became a true citizen of my own disgusting century, the century of poison gas and atomic bombs, a man living on the doorsill of the apocalypse, a man with veins full of poison living in death. Baudelaire could truly address me then, reader. Hypocrite, lector, mon semblable, mon frère. Hypocrite reader, my double, my brother.